If you will, start with me by going to Genesis, Genesis 1 and verse 1 this morning. And listen to this simple and beautiful truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now go with me to the back of God's word to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. As you look at this, as you see from Genesis to Revelation, a reoccurring theme in Scripture, you, you begin to understand there is really truly only one song that the Scriptures declare. There's one song that we as God's people are created to sing and to sing it now and for eternity. And that song is, is summed up in this, what the Protestant reformers refer to as soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory for life and for our salvation in particular. That was the song of the reformers. That's the song they sang because when they finally gained access to the Bible, they began to see this song everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. And I believe that as we see this, we should sing along with the reformers because this is the song that God himself composed in eternity past, if you will, for his own glory and for our joy. For the believer's joy and for God's praise, God has revealed to us what he has done to testify to his grace by redeeming sinners. This is the very song that the, that the Apostle Paul sang in Romans 11. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. This is the song that we hear the Apostle Paul sing here in verses 33 to 32. Six. Listen as I read it. The apostle ends chapter 11, ends his summation of all that he's written previous with this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And we would say amen along with the Apostle Paul here. We would say that because this is the song of every rescued sinner. This is the song that we will sing now as born again people and for eternity in God's presence. And when Paul comes to this passage, he comes to this part of the, the letter to the Romans. He has to understand that he pins this glorious God exalting song after writing 10 chapters, 10 chapters that begin with the revelation of man's sinful condition. And then move into God's grace and power that we see in Christ's redemption. And then he culminates in chapters 8 through 11 here with God's sovereign plan of salvation. 
And so what Paul is doing here is he is worshiping God as a result of the revelation of this truth about his grace to sinners through Christ for God's praise. That's why Paul is caught up, if you will, in praise in this passage when we come to Romans 11. This is a song of doxology. This is a song of thanksgiving, praise, adoration, jubilation. And here what we see is this. I'm going to give you an outline. Here Paul pins a song about, number one, God's exaltation over man's condition. And number two, he writes a song about God's determination in salvation. And then really thirdly, what he does is he, he writes this song not just for the glory of God, but also for us who are saved. He writes this song to cultivate in us eternal jubilation over God's gracious redemption in Christ. So this is a song that is meant to tune our hearts to sing his praise. And it's a song that we should come back to often when we are discouraged. When we are doubting God's love for us. When we are doubting God's plan for us. Because in this song, we see that God has done all that he does for us in Christ to bring him praise and glory on the last day. So he will not lose us. He will not leave us. He will work mightily to save us and sanctify us. What I really want to get across this morning is, though the Apostle Paul is writing to a specific group of people, the Romans, and he's talking about his own heart and his own joy He's talking about future joy as well. And he's talking about present transforming joy in those who understand this. He's singing Soli Deo Gloria about what God has done for him and for all the redeemed now and for eternity. And he wants us to join him in this song in rejoicing over God's grace. Now let's look at the first line of Paul's song here in Romans eleven thirty three. The first line of this song is is focused. It's focused on God's exaltation and man's humble condition. Look at verse 33. Just just look at it, but but feel what he's saying here. If you're a believer, you should be able to feel what he's saying here. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, he's he's referring back to all this great revelation of God's salvation, man's sinful condition, Christ's redemption. He says, oh, these deep riches, this great wisdom, this great knowledge of God. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What you need to feel and understand here is this. Paul is in absolute awe at this moment. And this is the man that God has chosen to give the greatest revelations to in the New Testament. Thirteen letters penned by the Apostle Paul. And he still can't get over this great work of grace in redemption. He's still caught up in wonder, love and praise for his God, for God's grace, for God's atoning mercy in Christ. Ask yourself this. Are you still caught up in that? Are you still caught away by that? Are you still drawn to that with joy today when you think about this? Do you think about the deep riches that you've received in Christ? The wisdom that you get in Christ? The knowledge about God's grace in Christ? Does that still blow you away? It should. It must. Because it's beyond us. 
We can't grasp it on our own. It has to be a work of God himself being done in us. This first line is is meant to produce that. It's meant to produce this God-exalting awe in our hearts, and it is intended to humble our sinful, prideful minds. Especially as you ponder the greatness of his wisdom and his great knowledge, not only in salvation, but in creation. Let me show you a small glimpse of what God's wisdom and knowledge look like in creation. Go with me to Job. Job 36, 26. Here we get a glimpse into God's wisdom and knowledge in creation. Now, it's going to get greater as you come to salvation. You'll see a greater reality of what, how wise he is and how knowledgeable he is to do what he does to save sinners like us. But think about this and be humbled by this. This is something that only God could do here. And he's revealing to us how great he is in it. Verse 26. Behold, God is great and we know him not. In other words, we can't grasp him. We can't fully wrap our minds around the greatness of our God, the God of creation. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain. And this is God's work in creation. We can't do this. No man can fathom how he has designed this in and of himself. God is the author of this. He says, which the skies pour down this this rain and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing declares his presence. I mean, what an amazing God we serve. Can you understand how deep his wisdom is here? No, you can't. Can you grasp the the vast knowledge that he has of every atom in creation and how they all concur to work together to do his decreed will? No, you can't. There was a time in, in, in our marriage early on where we had a, a shocking thing happen one night. And it testified to this truth in the middle of the night, a thunderstorm rolled through the house or through the, through the area. And it began to just pour down rain and it stopped. And then it was one of those things, it was just a lightning storm. And suddenly, lightning struck the back of our house. Struck the corner of our home. We all jumped up. Flames began to pop up around the corner of the house. I could see them from our bedroom window upstairs. I ran down and just as I ran down... A downpour like you would not believe hit the side of that house and extinguished the flames. The reality that God sent that just for me to even give this illustration to you. It hit me that night. God sent it and God provided for me in it. It caused me to stop right then and there and think about this. Think about this wise and all knowing God who works in creation. And if he he does that to care for me physically. How much greater is his care for me spiritually in Christ and his design in that? Let's look at what God's wisdom and knowledge look like in salvation now. 
This just blows my mind every time I read it. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to. Notice the wisdom and knowledge of God according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined or determined beforehand according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? Why did he do this? He tells us so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Can you fathom this? God set forth his love on you before the foundation of the world, before you and I have done anything good or bad, before we existed And he set that love upon us by sending forth his son to take our place in time to redeem sinners who are yet to be created so that we could be to the praise of his glorious grace. So that the reason for our salvation is this. It is to give God praise. It is a testify to the supremacy of Christ's atonement and the glorious mercy of God in his grace. That's why we're saved. We are saved to be trophies of grace. We were once vessels of wrath, privy pots, but now we are set apart because of Christ and God's grace to be testimonies of his grace for eternity. Now, I think that's in the mind of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, 33. Go back there with me. I think this great plan, this great redemption, this great power and work of God in his wisdom and knowledge and salvation. I think this is in the Apostle Paul's mind when he writes the next line in Romans eleven thirty three b I think this is the response to God's glorious wisdom in the work of salvation. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I mean, think about your own redemption. You think you chose God, don't you? But in reality, God had already chosen you unto salvation. But in time, someone came to you. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a relative. Maybe it was a street evangelist. And they shared the truth about God's grace in Christ. And you believed. And when you trace out the history of your own testimony, your own salvation, you begin to see it wasn't me seeking God after all. It was God seeking me all along. That's what he's amazed by. How unsearchable are his judgments? How providential? How does he work in these inscrutable ways to bring us redemption? 
And what he's saying in that song, in that line in the song, he's saying this. Just think, folks. Just think about how deep God's wisdom and knowledge are. Can you plumb the depths of his wisdom and knowledge? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. But there's one thing that he is clear about in Romans. Though we can't plumb it, we are commanded to rejoice in it. We should humbly rejoice over God's saving wisdom and knowledge that we receive in Christ and the gospel. Now, I realize that when I say this, when I read the text that I've read earlier, I realize that there's a lot of people who still struggle with this. They struggle over it because, and here's why we all struggled with it at any point, we struggle with the fact that God does the choosing, God does it for his praise and his glory, and we get the benefits because of Christ's sacrifice. And they think, well, that's great, but shouldn't that be for all men the same way? Shouldn't that be God showing his love to all men the same way? It's not fair. When I don't want fair, neither do you. We wanted grace. Fair would be hell. But let me ask you this. God's wisdom and knowledge in salvation that chose to set his love on you in Christ through that revelation of the gospel. Um, let me ask you, does he have the right to discriminate who he loves? He does. I love all of you very much, but I love Sherry more. I have a covenant love for her. And God loves all mankind in a general way. The very fact that he doesn't cause them to enter into perdition immediately upon their birth shows common grace. But some people hear these things and they think, well, if we're saved simply for the glory of God, don't don't doesn't that make us into robots? No, it doesn't. Because God has given us a new heart. He pursued us because of our death and our sin. And he granted life to us in Christ to give us a responding heart, a living heart that can sing his praise. And we choose to do that because of his grace. You see, regeneration precedes faith. He saves us so we can trust in him. He regenerates us outside of us. He does the work for us so that we can now choose to honor and glorify him now and forever. As I said, that these these things often cause us to stumble at times. They cause us to stumble because of our sinful pride. At times we, we think God's wisdom and power is great. And, and it's awesome to see what it can do to save sinners. But but the questions arise and doubts begin to flow to the mind of many people. And, and they begin to ask, why would God save some, but not all? If he's this gracious, if he's this wise, if he's this knowing, why does God elect some unto salvation and pass over others? Well, thankfully, our good and glorious God knows our weaknesses. He knows our tendencies in this area. He knows our prideful minds and our wicked hearts don't like the idea that he is sovereign over us. And so what God does for us in Romans 11 is God, in his wisdom, graciously inserts a series of questions into this song in order to humble our prideful hearts and quiet our weary minds. Now, these questions are designed to basically put to rest our doubting our doubting minds and our pride, our prideful hearts. And the way they do that is they, they magnify God's infinite wisdom and God's gracious heart. 
That's what these questions are designed to do. Let's look at the second question here, the second line, rather, of Paul's song in Romans 11, 34, and we'll see in 35. The second line of the song is focused on, secondly, God's determination. God, the sovereign one's determination to glorify his wisdom and his grace in our salvation. This is to humble us. This is to remove prideful attitudes from us. These questions are are also meant to produce this God exalting humility in our minds and in our actions as those who have been redeemed by his grace. We have nothing to boast in. Salvation from first to last is all of grace. Just look at the the first question here in 1134a. It says, "For, for who has known the mind of the Lord? The master, the sovereign Yahweh, who has known the mind of the creator, the savior? The answer is no one. Knowing the mind of the Lord means this. I can tap into and understand everything about this great God. Who has been able to do that? No one. No one can fathom the depths of his thinking. No one can fathom the immensity of his grace. No creature, by the way, even has the right, the inherent right to question him. We don't have the inherent right to question the mind of our creator as creatures. He made us. He sustains us. He will reign over us. We have no right to question him in anything. We do not have that right. We might do it, but it's not because of our right. It's because of our sin. Look what Job 38 says. Job 38 backs up the reality of that that we cannot, as creatures, think that we can assert some right over God and his wisdom and his grace. Job 38. This is lengthy, but let me read it to you. I think it's important. Now, this is the story of Job being answered by the Lord himself. Having struggled with some issues, struggled with why he's suffering, he says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? (laughs) I love this verse. Dress for action like a man. Pull up your bootstraps, Job. Get ready. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Um, Job, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You're going to question me and my rule and my authority? He says, where were you at when I made the planet? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. He's being sarcastic. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy... Um, or, or who shut in the sea with doors, then it burst out from the womb when I made clouds, its garments and thick darkness, its swaddling band. I prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? I mean, have you caused the sun to come up? Have you caused the earth to rotate? 
and cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. This is a set of very humbling questions. And that's his intent. He's intending to humble Job's proud heart. And we need that as well today. He's saying to Job that that no creature can plumb the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge, his mind. Here's why. Here's why Job can't do this. Job is finite. God is infinite. And here's the main reason we can't do this. God is holy and we are not. We are corrupt. Look what Romans 3 says. Romans 3 describes our condition. Why knowledge and wisdom is shielded from us. We do not seek it. We do not want it because in it we see God and his authority. No one, he says, none is righteous No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We, we can't judge God in this condition. We have no right. We have no ability. Because in and of ourselves, we are wicked. Notice that he starts out by saying that internally we are unrighteous. And then he moves to our mind. Intellectually, we are turning aside. We're worthless in our thinking. And then externally, it works its way out from the heart to the mind to the feet. Externally, our actions are corrupt in every way. So we have no right to judge God for anything he does or reveals to us in Scripture. Now, to to further humble us, if if you think about this, if to further humble us, go back to to Romans 11.34, part B. Here's what happens. Paul begins to exalt God's determination even more. So that he can glorify God. And that's God's very intent for giving us this revelation. God is determined to glorify himself in our salvation by humbling our hearts, humbling our proud minds. Verse 34b says, who has been God's counselor? Who's counseled God in the area of creation? No one. Who's counseled God in the area of regeneration or salvation? No one. Both were in the mind of God before the world was. Both are accomplished by his might, his power, his authority. In both, God does whatever he wills. And whatever he wills is for his own praise, his own glory. And whatever he does in that holy will, we as creatures can know that it's also for our good. It is for our good because 
God alone is the measurement of all goodness. Paul's point is this. Since God is his own counselor, that means he didn't need to consult us in creation or salvation because he does all these things according to the counsel of his sovereign and holy and loving will. Now, in light of that, in light of this reality of what, what it says in Scripture, in Romans 3, in Job 38, regarding creation and salvation, in light of that, do we as sinful creatures have the right to question the holy mind and actions of God? No, of course not. Ridiculous. But here's what we are to do. We are to simply accept these realities. Accept this revelation. Accept the word of God and be amazed by this. This is God's intent. It is to humble us so that we can see his exalted position, his grace and his glory. But we must accept the revelation, whether we like it or not, in ourselves. We are to be amazed by it because God alone, as we see in Scripture throughout it, God alone is the rescuer of sinners. And God alone is the revealer of his grace to sinners. And what God did to rescue us and reveal his grace to us is, according to Paul here, beyond human comprehension. It is without question. And it is done for his glorification. That's why he's given us this revelation in Romans 11. It's to exalt God's determination to glorify himself through our redemption, through our salvation. The salvation of sinners who don't deserve anything but his wrath. And we may not understand this. We may not understand Ephesians 1 fully. That's okay if you don't understand it, but you must accept it. You must accept it because it is God's revealed word. You may not like it, but it is God's word that proclaims it. And we see it not only in Ephesians 1, but in Genesis all the way to Revelation. Saints, his, his gracious plan that's revealed to us in Scripture When we see it from Genesis to Revelation, and in particular in places like Romans 9 and 10 and 11 and Ephesians 1, this this gracious plan should astound us. That's why it's meant, that's what it's meant to do by God's design. It should astound us, it should humble us, it should produce praise in us in light, in light of what it says in Romans 11.35. This should absolutely astound us. And by the way, let me add this. It should also give hope to sinners. Because if God saved wretches like us by his grace, there is hope for every lost person on this planet in his grace. Look what it says in verse 35. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That's a, that's a strange statement, isn't it? It's a question. It basically means this. If, if, if you're saved... By God's grace, you have to testify with the Apostle Paul that it was because of his choice alone, not because of anything that you and I have done or would do in the future. And what this line of this song is meant to to do, to produce in us, to magnify is this is to magnify God's gracious heart, not just his infinite mind, 
But this verse alone, verse 35, reveals the gracious heart of our God, our sovereign redeemer in salvation. He's saying you didn't earn it. You can't do anything to keep it. God is the giver of it. You haven't brought anything to him that he now owes you for. And this this line, I believe, saints, I believe this. I think this line should produce hope in us for our lost loved ones. And here's why. It reveals that God's love is focused on this. To glorify his sovereign grace by rescuing the helpless. Those who can't pay God back, those who can't keep God's favor upon them in and of themselves. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But God gives it. If God gave it to you and I, there is hope for every lost loved one that we give our hearts and lives to in this life. His grace is immeasurable. If his grace can save the chief of sinners, as Paul says in Timothy, he can save anyone. And I think when Paul says that, it's the definite article. He believed that he was the chief of every sinner. He was the worst of the worst. And he says, he saved me for this reason, to testify to the power of his grace that saves a wretch like me. And you and I can say that to those that we love that are lost. There's hope for you in God's grace. We didn't save ourselves. We couldn't have saved ourselves. Go back to Ephesians with me. Here's why we couldn't save ourselves. This is why we can't earn salvation. This is why we can't pay God back for anything he's done for us. This is why we can't keep ourselves saved by our good works. But God does all the work for us in Christ to accomplish this. And we can't do it because of what it says here in Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. It says here that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Ezekiel writes about the condition of man apart from God's redeeming grace as a valley of dry bones, and they are very dry, meaning there's no life in them at all. No morrow, no life, no blood. We, we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't earn salvation because we had nothing to offer God for our salvation but our sin. This is our sinful condition. We had nothing to give him but the wretchedness of our heart. So God is not going to receive that as a gift that we, he has to pay back. This is our condition. This is why we can't earn salvation, why we can't buy salvation, why we can't keep salvation in our own strength. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, walked, following the course of this world. Notice, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Saints, understand the power of the air here, the prince of the power of the air is Satan. He's the one who dominates this world and the people in it. He says, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the body and the mind, the soul. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we are. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. But God in his mercy wants to show us how great his grace is. So verse four says that God being rich in mercy, meaning abounding in mercy, compassion, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even in our worst condition, even our depravity, dead in our trespasses, 
God did something. There's nothing about man doing anything here. This is all about God's grace at work through Christ. Look what it says. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, God's unmerited favor, undeserved favor. You have been rescued, saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why are we saved? Is it so we can have the best life now that we're ever going to have? Absolutely not. Paul tells us why God displayed his grace to us in salvation. It is for his praise. Verse 7. Here's why God saved us by his grace, made us alive together in Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places, gave us a heavenly standing. So that. That's the purpose clause. So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You and I are saved to sing soli Deo Gloria for eternity. That's why we're saved. And I'm joyful about that. It could not be any other way because we couldn't bring anything to the table to please God with. We couldn't earn God's favor We had nothing to bring but our sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, determined to do something about that condition. He determined to show us his glory and his grace in Christ, according to what we see there in Ephesians 2. Saints, we we should take comfort in this and rejoice in it daily. And if you have lost loved ones, you should rejoice in this even more so today. Here's why. You can't save yourselves. You didn't save yourselves. Neither can they, but God can save, and he does, mightily. And here's what we need to know when we read things like verse 7 there in Ephesians. God loves to save sinners. He loves to reveal his great glory and his immeasurable grace through their redemption. This is how he displays his grace throughout eternity and on earth. He loves to save the helpless. He loves to rescue those who can't rescue themselves. This is the gospel that we hold forth to the lost, to the wicked, to the depraved. And we are testimonies of the power of that grace ourselves. But what I want you to understand about this great and sovereign God, this great and mighty creator and sustainer and an author of salvation. You understand something about his sovereignty and his plan of redemption. Understand this most clearly today. God's plan of redemption isn't some cold, calculated decree of a distant deity. Not at all. God the Son took on flesh to accomplish this work. This was a costly and loving choice of a good And sovereign God who sent forth his son to rescue us personally. How did he do it? By redeeming us with his own blood, paying the debt that we owe due to our sins against God. God, the son came and lived the righteous life we couldn't live to obey God's commands for us. But then in in glorious truth, we see in scripture that he not only lived for us, he died under God's wrath. In our place. So when we talk about sovereign redemption, 
We talk about God's sovereign choice and his sovereign grace. Understand that it is very personal to God. He sent forth his son and the son bled and died in the place of all those that will testify to his power and grace for eternity. Look what it says in Colossians. Colossians 2. We see how costly and loving God's good and sovereign choice to save us was here in 2. 13 to 15. It sounds a lot like Ephesians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. God made alive together with him. How did he do it? Well, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Here's how he did it practically. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is Christ. This was a personal sacrifice. This was a immeasurable display of God's grace. Christ came into this world To display the goodness of God for us to see through his life and his death and his resurrection. And this was all by God's design to testify to his glory and grace for eternity through a redeemed people that he had sent his son to purchase. Saints, God lovingly brought about this gracious and costly plan by sending Jesus, the sinless son of God, undefiled by sin. He sent him, as I said, to live a righteous life in our place because we are wicked at the core. Every good deed we try to do has self-motivation in it, apart from Christ. But Christ came and he did the Father's will in our place. He lived the righteous life that we couldn't live. He then wore the curse that we deserved on the cross. And God's wrath fell upon him in our stead. The full fury of God's wrath that would take you and I eternity to atone for. Christ received in three hours on the cross in our place. This testified not only to God's grace, but the deity of our Savior himself. The truly God and truly man, Jesus Christ, who came as our perfect substitute. And not only did he die in our place, he rose victoriously again as our acceptable substitute To declare us righteous based on his work, not our own. Now, Paul's caught up in all this when he's writing Romans 11. It's into then that 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 this gracious act of God is seen. It's in God's grace that we see the exaltation of Christ and the plan that he would accomplish by his own sacrifice. And in that we should rejoice if we are born again this morning. This is what cultivates, by the way, I just have a note down here further. I'll never get to it, but rejoicing in Christ and God's grace is the very fuel behind sanctification. If you rejoice in what God has done for you in Christ Jesus by his grace, by his unmerited favor, you won't want to live in sin, though you do sin. You will want to quickly turn from it because you see what God has done to atone for it in Christ. What God has sacrificed to to set us apart for his praise and his glory now and for eternity. So rejoicing with Paul here 
is meant to not only cause our minds to be humbled, our hearts to be humbled, but cause us to actually walk in obedience to the God who saved us. To bring honor and praise to his name. That's what Paul, I believe, is doing here. And I think that's what he's calling for in the third line of the song in Romans eleven thirty six. Here's how it ends. It ends with a song of jubilation, praise, adoration, exultation. In verse 36, you can see why I think that I call this piece of the song a song of jubilation when you read it. This should be your song this morning, a song of joy, a song of praise and thanksgiving. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, meaning to God alone, be glory forever. Amen. Again, remember that. All that Paul has written formally in in Romans here, and it's now culminating in this passage, is culminating here and it's bursting forth with adoration, jubilation, praise, thanksgiving to God alone for his salvation. Is that the way you and I respond when we read scripture? When we see the revelation of God's grace in Christ, do we still get excited like this? I don't because of my sin. Because of my pride, because of selfishness, because of Satan's influence. And I think this is a sanctifying song here in our hearts if we've truly been born again. If we hear this song, we think, why do I not respond like the apostle here? This, this truth in this song should produce an outburst of praise in me, just like it produced in the apostle Paul. We're saved by the same grace, by the same sacrifice. So here's my question this morning. Do you want to rejoice like that again? Do you want to rejoice like that about the gospel daily? We should. We, we, we should. We fall short. We don't do it as we ought. But we should, as Christians, as we contemplate the work of God's grace in Christ, we should want to sing this song daily. And I'll tell you two reasons why. One, that is God's command and will for us in this life. And one or two, we're going to do it for eternity. This is the song that rescued sinners will sing throughout all eternity. Go with me to Revelation 5, which will echo the song that Paul sings in Romans 11. I think echo it very clearly. Romans, or Revelation rather, 5 verse 9. This is the redeemed in glory. And they will sing a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people, individuals for God out of or from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, a myriad of angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the song we will sing for eternity. Do you want to sing that song presently? Do you want to echo the voice of the angels who are around the throne day and night? Amazed by the grace that we received in Christ, singing the song that the lamb who was sent by God, by his grace to save sinners. He is worthy of praise, worthy of adoration. This should be the heart of every Christian in this building. When you look at this song in Revelation and in Romans, you'll see that this song is the song of heaven. It's the one song we're going to constantly sing for eternity. And if you look at the song very closely in Revelation here five, you'll notice that this song is grace driven and cross centered. See, that's what will produce joy in our hearts daily as Christians. If we are contemplating the grace of God by looking to the cross of Christ, looking at God's grace to us through Christ's sacrifice, we will be filled with wonder, love and praise on a regular basis. That, my friends, is what keeps us from sin. That is the power of God and his grace to sanctify us. He works through this great and glorious revelation to amaze us by his grace daily, to keep us from sin daily. So here's the question. Are you, are you still amazed by this? Are you still amazed that one day you're going to join this heavenly choir, these heavenly voices singing, singing and praising God forever singing soli Deo Gloria. And you're going to do that because of God's infinite wisdom and his gracious love that has been revealed to us in the gospel. When God sent forth his son to be slain for us. Are you going to rejoice in that? Are you going to rejoice in knowing that you're going to be with these angels singing this heavenly song with these saints? Because in this song, what you're going to see is this is what makes us able to rest in his wisdom and his grace forever. We rest in his wisdom, though we can't understand it all. We rest in his grace. We can't measure it. We rest in it forever because this was God's plan. In the fullness of time, he accomplished it in Christ. And this this song in Revelation 5, I think, is filled with God's glory and his grace But it also gives us a promise or a hope. There's a hope here in this. We're going to rest in the presence of God because of Christ's ransoming work. We're going to come into his presence testifying to this greatness, the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God. And we're going to find peace. We won't find wrath. We're going to rest in that. That's our gracious hope. And it's really gracious when you think about how sinful we are and how holy God is. But let me ask you this. Though that's the promise of eternal rest in God's grace, let me ask you this. Does my life and your life testify to this grace and this hope presently? Go back with me to Ephesians 2. 2, 8 to 9 to 10, rather. If if you want your lives to testify to the hope that you have in eternity, but you want it to testify now in time, you need to understand what Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 is revealing. What it's revealing about what we ought to be showing forth now and for eternity. Look what it says. 
For by grace, God's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That is faith and grace, salvation. All of that is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Here's why we don't boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God ordained or prepared beforehand that we should live in or walk in them. Verse 10, he's telling us God's rescued people are called God's workmanship. He saved us for a purpose. The word workmanship here, this phrase, is the word poema. It's the Greek word that we get the word poem from. He's saying, the apostle's saying, that you are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus for his praise. That's why you want to sing his glorious grace now through your transformed lives. Our lives are to be a testimony of God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. A continual song of praise to our great God. Meaning... Our our life should be set apart unto holiness, set apart to honor Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So is that is that the song of your heart today? Think about this. Let it examine your heart as you think about it. Are you truly singing how great God's grace is by the life you're living? Let's just be honest for a second. All of us, including me, especially. This is the song we want to sing. As Christians. But this is a song that I found is often muted in my life. It's often out of tune in my life. And here's why. Because of sin. Because of Satan's influence. Because of selfishness. Those things mute or distort this glorious song. The saints, I want you to know something this morning. The God who saves, the sovereign one, the gracious one. The God who not only has the power to save us, that same God in his mercy and grace also is eager to sanctify us and tune our hearts so that we can sing his praise. And let's just be honest, we all need his tuning daily. So so if you feel that today as we think about this and I ask you the question, is that the song of your heart? Is your life singing this song of praise and Adoration through a life set apart unto sanctification. You may feel like that song is muted in your life because of sin. But I want you to know this. By God's grace, you can find the song of your heart once again. All you need to do is look to Christ. The one who is the source of all grace. One last passage. Hebrews 4. Here is where you are to turn If you feel like the song is muted in your life due to sin. Turn to our great high priest who interceded for us. Because in Christ's work, our hearts will be tuned to sing God's praise if we meditate on this. And we actually enjoy the truth that's revealed in it by acting on it. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Because of this, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This is what brings us into God's presence without wrath. It is Christ who is our substitute. It is Christ who intercedes as our high priest. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If if you tune your heart to God's grace by looking to Christ, you will begin once again to sing God's praise through your life. The mute button will be taken off. You'll begin to enjoy this great relationship you have by grace and through grace. Now, let me end with this, that you might be here today, and when I talk about singing God's praise, that the song of your heart is your desire to, to honor God through your life and now and for eternity. You may be here this morning, and that's not your heart's desire. That's not your heart's song. And that's most likely due to the fact that you are unregenerate. The true Christian wants to give God adoration. Wants to sing out to God, praise us for his grace in Christ. But if you're here today and you have not that desire, if you struggle with what I'm saying because you think, I just don't have that, Randy, what do I do? I must not be elect. I must not be chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. Well, let me tell you something. You're here by God's design. You're here to hear this message. You're here to cry out to God this morning. Because God alone has the power to save your soul, to expose the wretchedness of your sin, and to transform you from the inside out. And if that's your desire right now at this moment, I want you to know that's because of God's grace. It is at work in you. It is exposing these things, revealing these things, turning your heart to these things. So here's what you must do. You must repent. You must ask the Lord to open your eyes to see the glory of his grace in the saving work of Christ. Trust in that, not in anything else. Do that today and you will live. Do that and you can enjoy singing God's praises now and forever. This is what I call upon you to do in Christ's name this morning. And for the saints that are here that are still struggling, go back once again meditate upon God's grace to us that we see revealed in Christ Jesus. I promise you, it will not do anything but produce joy in your souls. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Only joy and future grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the revelation you have given us in your word that testifies to your might and your power and your love. And how you completed the work of redemption through the gift of your son to testify to your grace for eternity. We pray, God, that you would help us today to confess our sins, to come to our great high priest and find hope and help in the time of need at the throne of grace. Let us, God, rest our minds and our hearts on your word this morning. Lord, I pray that there are any lost among us today. I pray, God, you, by your grace and for your glory, would do a saving work in their hearts through the message of the gospel. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.